You're listening to the Charity Champions Podcast. Each year, TFNB Your Bank for Life chooses six nonprofits from around Central Texas to recognize as Charity Champions. Tonight's Charity Champion is... Champions enjoy live on-field presentations at Baylor University home football and basketball games, online broadcast and print marketing exposure, and world-class leadership development through 360 Solutions, all at no cost to the nonprofit. In this podcast, we want to get to know our Charity Champions a little better. We're bringing those who help and those who have been helped into the studio to hear the stories behind the champions. On this episode, Nightlight Christian Adoptions. About 2% of women who are facing unplanned pregnancy place for adoption. Executive Director Aaron Wheeler-Cerrone talks to us about placing children in caring Christian homes. We talk about domestic, international, and embryo adoption, as well as how adoptive parents should talk to their kids. It's never a secret because Uh for kiddos, things that are secretive are often seen as shameful, right? You're not ashamed that your child's adopted. It's part of his story. And now let's get to know our champion. So welcome to the studio, Aaron. If you could kind of start by just introducing yourself and tell us about your background a bit. Um, well, thank you for having me. I'm Erin Wheeler. I'm the executive director of Generations Adoptions, a division of Nightlight Christian Adoptions. And we are a local Christian nonprofit adoption agency. We started in 2004 here in Waco, and we were an independent private adoption agency from 2004 to the end of 2016. And then the beginning of last year, January 1st of 2017, we merged with Nightlight. So now we have two names and a lot of people still know us as Generations. Um, We are part of Nightlight. um, So we go by either. And we have historically had a domestic adoption program that most people are pretty familiar with, with a pregnant mom choosing to place her baby for adoption with a couple. Um, We also have had international programs um, since I think about 2008. We have a number of international programs. And then Nightlight actually pioneered Snowflakes embryo adoption. And that program just celebrated 20 years and over 500 babies have been born from frozen embryos. Um, So that's a really exciting option for families as well. That's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. You guys have been a charity champion since the beginning. Is that right? right. Yep. First year. I remember seeing you at all the training sessions way back and you're still coming. And I still come. Which is great. So tell us about yourself. What's, what's your background? How did you get into this sort of work? Well, I came to Waco originally for Baylor, um, sick and bears. I'm a big fan of my alma mater. <laughs> um, originally fell in love with Waco. Um, my first job actually taught at Baylor at the Child Development Center. And so I worked with, I always had a passion for children and families. So I worked with little tiny kids with three and four-year-olds and with their parents. And then I also trained the Baylor students and how to be teachers, how to assess child development, um, what that looked like, how to talk to children in a developmentally appropriate way. And at the same time, while I was at Baylor and while I was teaching, I volunteered at the local pregnancy center. And so I fell in love with that population of women who were just in a really scary place oftentimes, not knowing if they were pregnant, if they weren't. Um, uncertainty at times in their relationships and where they were going in life. And I always kind of wondered what happened to them next, you know, because a lot of times you'd see somebody just one time and you never see them again. Um, And sometimes if you saw them again, it wasn't for a happy reason. They weren't typically thrilled to be coming back to the pregnancy center for another pregnancy test. So the follow-up oftentimes maybe had some grief involved and and sometimes they were really happy to be pregnant. It was a really positive thing, but other times they weren't. And I always just wondered about our clients and we could call them on the phone or send them a postcard in the mail, but oftentimes I wouldn't hear back. And I was a volunteer, so I was just there once a week. Um, I know the staff has a lot more interaction um, on a frequent basis with the clients. While I was teaching, the opportunity for 
um, a job opened up at Generations. I actually started off as the office manager and a birth mom caseworker. So a little bit of a contradiction. One job required me to travel literally all over the state of Texas. I might drive six or eight hours in a day to meet with a birth mom. But then the other part of my job was to run our office and our files and answer the phone. So after a few months, I switched over to just being a birth mom caseworker and um, did that for 10 years. And I really, really enjoyed it. I loved getting to work with women and walk alongside them for their whole journey for a good deal of their pregnancy because women often come in that first trimester and start making an adoption plan, start with their counseling. And so that was really rewarding to get to build relationships with women. And many of those women I still have relationships with. They still come. Um, one even texted me the other day and she said, hey, can we get together? It's been a while. I want to get some coffee. And a lot of times women will say, you know, sometimes my friends and family get really tired of hearing me talk about my adoption, but you don't get tired of it. You know, they'll say, Erin, I can always call you. And other times they haven't told a lot of people in their lives. So maybe they just don't feel comfortable sharing, but we're always a safe place they can come to you. And, and we hear about all sorts of things too. It's not just about the adoption. They want to tell us about, you know, their job or if they've married, if they have other kids, um, where they've gone on vacation, even things like that. And so I love that can be a part of people's lives long-term and see how they move forward in the future. We have actually also had a few return clients. We don't have as many. When you look at the birth mom clients, we've had a few. Um, but that's a really rewarding feeling as well, knowing that they felt really safe and cared for um, enough so that if they were in another unplanned pregnancy, they could come back to us and use our services again. And then on the adoptive family side, that was really fun for me because like I said, I've always loved working with children and families. That was actually my major at Baylor. I majored in child and family studies. And so getting to work with adoptive families and we walk alongside them as well for the whole journey. So we do their education, their preparation. They have to have a home study in order to adopt a child. And then the state requires us to monitor a family for six months. So we're in their home every month and we're checking on how the baby's doing and their bonding and attachment, answering their questions and even guiding them through birth family relationships as well. Because adoption these days is really different from how it used to be. It's not goodbye forever. It's not you never see your baby again. In fact, yesterday, one of our adoptive dads called. They adopted about a year ago, and they've had this great relationship with birth mom. They see her every few months, and they just saw her, their little girl turned one last month, and they just you know had a celebration with her, and they just have this really sweet relationship they've grown with her and her siblings and her whole family. And recently, birth dad popped up, and he um, reconnected with birth mom, and, and she let him know about you know the adoptive family, and he was upset a little bit at first just that he'd missed a whole year mm -hmm. of the baby's life but then got really excited about the fact that they want openness with him they want to meet him they want to send him pictures they want to you know they've already exchanged email addresses so they can send him pictures and updates on how the baby's doing but I really appreciate that the family's first call was to us to say what do we do you know guide mm -hmm. us through this and, um, and they remember their training as we talk through it so that's a big part of it too that we're not just here as families welcome a child home we're here forever whether it's a year later or five years later, 10 years later, we're always here for all three members of what's called the adoption triad, which is the birth mom, the adoptive family, and the child. So every member of that triad at any point, um, they can come to us and, and we'll guide them and pray for them and um, support them. You're working with both the birth moms, birth parents, and then also the adoptive parents. Paint a picture for who the, the birth moms are, typically. So a lot of people picture, oh, it's this young mom, she's 15 years old, and it's her first baby. But while that can be the case, and we've had moms as young as 12 years old, we've also had moms that are 42 or 43. I worked with a woman years ago, she was 43 years old, and she'd been a young mama, so she'd raised her kids, and her daughter already had two kids, so she was a grandmother. And she said, I just don't want to 
start over again. And so she actually purposely chose a family who'd been trying to have children for about a decade. She said, I want my child to have everything, you know, that I would have given him if I was able to, but I just, I can't start over and I want to give that joy to a couple. And he's just, you know, the light of their lives. They love him so much. And they actually became missionaries and she's <laughs> thrilled that he's had all these opportunities and been exposed to culture and languages. And, um, and she says that often I could never have given him those experiences. So oftentimes birth moms actually do have other kids. About 60% of moms, more than half, are parenting other children. Wow. Yeah, a lot of people are really surprised by that. But what we believe is that moms who are already parenting children, they know how hard it is. They know what it takes emotionally and financially and physically and space in their home and their resources. They know what they have to give. And sometimes if she has three or four or five other kiddos, she may realize that she doesn't have enough to give to that baby. And so that can be a reason for a mom to make an adoption plan. So oftentimes birth moms do have other kids. Um, They're usually between the ages of 19 and 29. We do see some younger clients, but it's a pretty mature decision to make. And you have to see the baby as an extension of yourself, which sometimes can be really hard. If you are 13 or 14, Mm -hmm. um, your brain is still developing, right? And you're not you're not even fully developed in your own identity. So to recognize the baby isn't just an accessory or just another part of you, um, but as a whole separate being um, is a pretty mature step developmentally. So we don't have as many younger clients, but that 19 to 29 is obviously the most fertile age for women as well. But we do have women in their 30s and 40s who've placed. We've had women of all socioeconomic statuses. I've been in some birth moms' homes where they're very comfortable in, in financial um, reasons aren't their motivation for placing. It's that they either don't feel ready to be a parent. Sometimes birth dad, you know, has been an abuser or a gang member or someone that they feel the only reason they're placing is to protect their child from the birth dad. Um, and then other times we've had birth dads that are wonderful and involved and supportive and they come to every meeting for counseling and they help choose the family and they're there at the hospital and they come to all the visits after the adoption. So we have some birth dads that are really wonderful and engaged, but that is a really common reason if birth dad's just not involved for whatever reason. Maybe it was a one night stand or they broke up and blocked each other on Facebook and now she can't figure out how to tell them she's pregnant. You know, there's all sorts of scenarios and then all races as well. So we have moms of, you know, African-American, Caucasian, Hispanic backgrounds um, primarily. And, and then our adoptive families, um, as far as those demographics, most of our families, I would say, are between 25 and 45. We have families. So now that we are a part of Nightlight, uh, as generations, we just worked in Texas. We were licensed here in this state. But one of the benefits of our merger is that a birth mom can choose a family that lives in Texas or any state. And any of our families can be chosen by a birth mom that's in another state. So that's really cool. And in fact, earlier this week, we had a family who was chosen by, well, last week, actually, they were chosen by a birth mom in Missouri and um, was pretty close to her due date. And so they were really excited and they set up a meeting and they planned to fly out there. And then birth mom ended up having the baby even before they could meet or before their scheduled meeting, they did meet. Everything went really well. So they spent the whole weekend with at the hospital with her and her mom and her family and getting to know one another and just kind of fell in love with each other and really bonded and she moved forward with her adoption plan and so they have this little baby now in their family um, because this birth mom in Missouri saw their profile book and their video and fell in love with them so that's been a really neat benefit um, for both our families and our birth moms to kind of expand their opportunities to be chosen um, or to be matched with a birth mom or with an adoptive family. Do you find that more adoptive families are people who have tried to have kids but couldn't or are they just people who decided that adoption is the route for them and they you know, hadn't necessarily tried? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it really depends on the program. So in domestic adoptions, 
more of our families are coming to us because they haven't been able to have a child. We do have some who just feel called to adopt. They've had biological kids and say, we feel that God's called us to adoption, um, which is wonderful. But many of our families are either infertile or have struggled with secondary infertility where they've been able to have one child or sometimes two children and then just have unexplained infertility, haven't been able to have more children. And then in our international programs, I'd say the majority of our families are families who feel called. And so they already have biological kids typically and very few of those families are coming to adopt because of infertility. So it really depends on the program. And then for our embryo adoption program, the majority of the families that I've worked with haven't had children, or if they have children, they've adopted them, but they're infertile couples. But one of the benefits of the embryo program is that because the baby isn't your DNA, that um, sometimes couples who the husband and wife's DNA don't work together to have a baby, that the mom is still able to carry um, carry to term and give birth to an adopted baby. So that's been a really neat thing to get to see. I was trying to wait till later to talk about all the embryo stuff, but it's really interesting to me. How long have you guys been offering this and how does that work exactly? Yeah, it's it's a really neat program. I'm really excited about it, as you can tell. So we started our partnership. Generations actually partnered with Nightlight, um, the agency that we are now a part of, starting in 2012. So we had about four years, four and a half years that we had this partnership with them to be able to offer this program to families. But Nightlight actually pioneered it 20 years ago. So what was happening was couples are going through the IVF process and then they have remaining embryos. And so clinics were giving the embryos to other families anonymously. And oftentimes it was, you know, you get an embryo and you get an embryo, you know, passing them out to different families anonymously. So if you think about that, if you take a step back and go, wait a minute, those are all full biological siblings. So let's say the, the original genetic family had, we'll say three kids, and then they had three remaining embryos. Now their full biological children are being raised by two or three other families, none of whom know each other. Hmm. So, you know, what if... If, you know, here you are in Texas, what if you were in Austin, let's say there's a big fertility clinic there and, you know, these families are in Austin when they all have their babies and let's say they're still there 20 years later and you find these kids all at college together. They don't know they're related because they were all anonymous donors, right? So it can cause some some ethical dilemmas. Mm. And so what Nightlight realized was this is happening already, right? There's remaining embryos. There's couples who are wanting to have a family. And so let's put some parameters around it um, for the protection of everybody and for best practices. And so the best practices of adoption are to have a home study. So that what part of a home study is education. So how do you talk to your child about being adopted? It's not a secret. It's not shameful. It's just a normal part of their life. They just were adopted. And that's a part of their story. And in embryo adoption, it's a really unique part of the story, right? Um, a very different way than a lot of people come to be. And so we talk to them about how to talk to their child about being adopted. We talk about issues of race. Um, we do have some couples who adopt transracially which is really fascinating when you have, you know, a Caucasian mom give birth to an African-American baby. And so there's a lot of different um, topics that we cover to really prepare our families well. We talk about bonding and attachment because they, even though they're carrying this baby, you know, mom is pregnant and they're delivering the baby, the baby's not biologically related to them. And so we talk about that, that they may feel very bonded to the baby or like an, an adoptive parent in an international or domestic situation, it may take some time to bond and that's normal. So we prepare the family. And then we also do all the screening that you would imagine 
imagine in a regular adoption. You'd think of kind of in a traditional domestic or international adoption where the family, you know, has their fingerprints taken, the FBI background checks run and all of that. So we still do all the checks. We go to the home. We make sure it's a safe place for a baby. We provide them with their education. So when the genetic parents who have these embryos are choosing an adoptive family, they know this family's had a home study. They've had their background checks done. They understand the process. And so they actually make a profile, the family that's wanting to adopt. They make a profile book and it's shown to the genetic couple. So just like a birth mother who's pregnant would choose a family for her baby, the genetic parents are able to choose a family for their baby. So that's a really neat part of the process. And it's a mutual selection process. So the genetic family says this is the adoptive family we want. And the adoptive family is able to review the genetic family's information, say, yes, this is a match we want. Um, And then it moves forward from there. It's really interesting to me because you think of like your mother is who gave birth to you. And it may be someone who gave birth to you, but it may not be related to you at all. That's absolutely that's crazy. Yeah, not your biological mother. Yeah, I, I have a question about um, if you have, say, two or three sibling embryos. So how does that work in terms of gestation? All at the same time, separate times? Oh, I mean, good question. So if you adopted, let's say you adopted a group of four embryos, the doctor uh would probably recommend two courses of action. Either you would transfer two at a time, so you do two separate transfers, or some doctors recommend one at a time. So every doctor in every scenario, it's a little bit different. You can get into a lot of specifics with the grade of the embryos and the quality and the the adoptive mother, her age and what her uterus looks like, right? So there's a lot of medical components to that. Um, Many of our families have transferred two embryos, and then if one embryo, hasn't you know attached well inside the uterus and um, then the other baby often still grows and they still have a pregnancy we've had a few families so just like when you're trying to become pregnant biologically you know there's a lot of times where couples will miscarry or sometimes not even know that an egg was fertilized and and that that didn't um, turn into a pregnancy because of the way that that conception happens right just biologically but in this case you're going to know right the doctor's going to be putting the embryos inside the mom's uterus and so we've had families who've had two transferred that neither baby has attached and they've grieved that as a miscarriage as the last of those babies but we've had many families who have been able to give birth to at least one baby we have a couple families who've been birthed to twins because both of the embryos attached and grew into healthy little babies and were delivered and then we also have many families who've just transferred one embryo and that one embryo has been a successful pregnancy and they've given birth so you don't have to transfer all at once but most doctors wouldn't transfer more than two because for every embryo you transfer you can have a live baby but also embryos can split. So just like in a biological pregnancy, a mom's embryo might split and she would have identical twins. <laughs> just looking at your face. <laughs> uh, my, my head is swimming because yeah, I, I have so many questions that, that I can't ask. <laughs> You can ask me later. I'll fill you in. So, but if you had transferred two, you know that there is a risk one or both could split. And then this mom will be pregnant with three or four. So that's why two would be the max. But a lot of doctors just transfer one. And many times that is successful. I I do have one question I I just have to ask. I think I heard you say something which kind of surprises me. But is this true that, that there could be a transfer of siblings? And by that, I mean implantation. But they're not twins, that they were conceived at a different time. That is possible. Have so you that seen if they that? were all frozen together. Yeah, yeah. So that you, could be possible. Mm-hmm. Well, I know it's possible, but I, I'm thinking it's highly unlikely, but I guess. So usually what they would do is, so if a couple's going through IVF, they would harvest all of the mom's eggs and fertilize them all at one time and freeze them. So it would be unusual for them to be created at different times. Right. But if you think about it, if God's put those eggs in a woman's body, you know, when a woman, you know, 
is young. She has all the eggs she's ever going to have, right? So mm-hmm. those are all the children she could potentially have, and they're all fertilized and they're all frozen. But if she had gone through the process with her husband um, of just biologically being able to have babies without any assistance, mm-hmm. then you know there would have been the firstborn child, right? And then the secondborn child, and right. maybe a girl would have been first, our boy would have been first, and maybe they would have had twins, and maybe they wouldn't have had twins, right? But now we don't know which one would have come first. So really, the doctor's just looking at the embryos, and they are they're frozen, so they're in cryogenic storage and they're frozen in what's called a straw so a long like think of like a drinking straw Um, sometimes one embryo sometimes two usually no more than three but however many are in a straw have to be thawed at one time and then they can be refrozen so you can so so yes if you're transferring two embryos we don't know if the situation had been different would they have been twins would they not would one have been two years older you know there's there's a lot of interesting you could you could think about that for a while and right. what that could have looked like yeah but i think i did hear you say that sometimes uh, when you have twins they can be transferred at different times and they each have separate gestation periods so oh no they would be transferred together okay Sorry if that was confusing. Okay. Yeah. All right. So they could two would be transferred at the same time, and sometimes one doesn't attach and doesn't make it, I got but the you. other one does. Okay. I bet you if you went back just a decade in the adoption industry, things would be completely different than they are now. <laughs> yeah, it's really fascinating all this new technology, and and it's allowed. I, I think I said that earlier, but if I didn't, so. Our program's now been around for 20 years, and over 500 babies have been born. So it's really exciting to think of. These are children who were, when we say kind of taking children out of the freezer. They were frozen, and now they have a chance at life and a chance to be raised in a Christian family um, and just a chance to experience the world that they wouldn't have if they were frozen. Okay, so what what is uh, the typical situation, an open or a closed adoption where the birth parents are known to the adoptive parents? What's typical these days is open. So most birth parents want some level of openness. And so that could mean visiting once a year. It could mean pictures and updates. But most of our moms want some face-to-face contact where they get to see their child and, and just watch them grow up. Okay, so 50 years ago, the typical mm-hmm. was closed. Right. Why the change? What happened? Yeah, good question. So a lot of research has been done um, over the years. And I think the most important research has been interviewing adoptees. So people who were adopted as infants and as teenagers, how do they feel about their adoption? As adults, how do they feel about their adoption? What has that been like for them? Mm-hmm. And so what teens and adults will say, um, adoptees, the majority of them, is that if they didn't have openness, that's what they long for. They wish they knew mm-hmm. their birth mom. They wish they knew their birth dad? Do I have siblings? You know, these are the questions that they want to know. And so there's a lot of benefit to having that openness. Um, and the ones who have had openness, the way they shared about it and the way that it helped form their identity was really eye-opening. And so we learned as a community, as adoption professionals, that there's such knowledge to be gained mm-hmm. through that relationship. It really forms who you are. So your identity as an adopted person, part of it comes from the family who raised you, your adoptive parents. Right. Um, you might you know, have the same expression as your adoptive mom when you're excited, or you might pace around the room like your adoptive dad, or you might be really good at math like your birth dad, or mm-hmm. really good at basketball like your birth mom. So you get qualities from both. And some of those are things that God inherently, as, as you're created, some of those things are, are in your DNA, right? 
and other things. It's that nature versus nurture, right? Some of it's nature, some right. of it's nurture. And so putting all of those pieces together, it's like a puzzle. So you get the puzzle pieces from your birth family, you get the puzzle pieces from your adoptive family, and you put it all together. And as adults as well, it gives them a healthy self-esteem and self-confidence. Um, and in fact, one study, they asked adopted kids, um, do you feel like you're as well-adjusted as your peers at school, you know, your peers that were raised in a biological family? And they said, oh, yes, we are. And they said, do you feel like you're, you know, as loved? And they said, oh, yeah, we think we're even more loved. We have two families that love us. You know, we have our birth family that loves us. We have our adoptive family that loves us. And so I think it's all in how it's explained to the child. Because some people say, oh, gosh, wouldn't that be confusing if a child had two moms and two dads? And how do you explain it? But it doesn't have to be confusing. You know, you just share with your child, you know, God had a really special plan for your life. You know, you grew in your birth mommy's tummy. And then when she was born, she chose us to be your parents. And that was God's plan for you. And so, you know, a lot of adoptive moms will say something like, you know, you grew in your birth mommy's tummy, but you grew in mommy's heart. You know, and so they're always mom and dad. Um, birth mom and birth dad, if he's involved, that's a really special role. Sometimes people try to define it. What is that like? Is it like an aunt? Is it like, it's like, well, not really. One of our birth moms said, I'm not, not his aunt. <laughs> his birth mom and gave birth to him. He's my baby. But it's just another person who loves them, who cheers them on, who supports them. When families ask us, what do we write in our letter to share and update our birth mom? So well, what does grandma want to know? You know, how much is the baby eating? And has he rolled over? Or, you know, hey, here's some pictures from his soccer game or her first school play. They want to know every detail, you know, about what's going on. And they're so yeah. excited because they love this little person. They love that child so much that they sacrificed and made this choice to place that child for adoption. So in answer to your question, openness really is a healthy thing. And that trend has changed. I would say the most change has probably been seen over the last 20 years. Um, but yes, you're right, 50 years ago. Um, in fact, our founder, um, Kathy Sones, she was adopted as a child, um, as an infant. And she doesn't even know her birth mom's first name. She doesn't know any information about either birth parent. Back then, it wasn't really talked about. They didn't gather information. Um, when she would try to talk to her um, her parents about her adoption, her mom would cry. And she would think, oh, I don't want to make my mom sad because I love my mom. And so she, even though her mom never said, let's not talk about it, she didn't want to make her mom sad because she loved her. So she wouldn't right. ask questions. And then as an adult went, gosh, I wish my mom would have had some counseling in, in preparation to know how to talk to me about being an adopted kid. Wow. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking back now to the embryo. Is that an open adoption situation typically? Yes, that one can be open as well. Okay, and so would you say that most birth moms, they condition the adoption on an open adoption? So legally, there's not parameters around openness. Okay, so... Right. Adoption laws are really clear. So when mom makes her adoption plan and she signs her relinquishment papers and she designates the parents as the adoptive parents and mm -hmm. they go to court and they finalize, they are the baby's parents forever, right. right? Right. So there's not any legal oversight of openness. So what we do with every one of our cases is we have our birth mom and adoptive family create an openness agreement of the heart. And that's something that the caseworker, that's part of our job. We facilitate that. So it's not that she has to come up with on her own or the family to come up with on their own. Yeah. We ask her questions and then we create this document that everybody signs and agrees to. And it's how often are they going to visit and when is the family going to send pictures and updates. And it's definitely two-way street. She can send a birthday card or a Christmas right. card or pictures of her other kiddos. And so it's not just the family sending information to birth mom, but it goes both ways. If the family 
you know, this doesn't happen very often, but let's say the family gets really busy and they forgot to send pictures, then the birth mom can call us and we'll call the family and say, hey, remember what you agreed to? Um, And we do ask our families, you know, don't commit somewhere than you think you can do. You know, don't say you're going to send the birth mom a picture of the baby every day. That's yeah. not realistic. Well, when, <laughs> no. I, when, when I use the term open, mm-hmm. uh, I'm thinking about primarily uh, the records at the courthouse. Oh, that's a good question. Okay, and so to Those me, if it's sealed. an open adoption, it's open to the public to see, and eventually mm-hmm. the child would find out one day anyway, so the motivation mm-hmm. there is we might as well address this head on because it'd be better to do it now than later. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where I'm coming from on the question about it being open. Yeah, that makes sense. So the records are sealed. You know, it's a okay. minor, of course. Okay. So records are sealed. Um, a child at 18 can request <clears throat> for their records to be unsealed or could request to file from the agency um, if they've been adopted. But what you said a second ago about better to tell them when they're young is absolutely true. Because in the olden days, you would sit a child down at you know, 18 or 21 or whatever the parents thought the magical age would be and say, oh, by the way, you were adopted. And then the child goes, well, can I trust you about anything you've ever said to me my whole life? (laughs) If I can't trust you about this basic who I am, can I trust you about anything? Um, You know, and sometimes people didn't even find out they were adopted till after their parents had passed away and they were going through paperwork and they find their original birth certificate and, oh, Aunt Sally was really my mom, you know. And so then they can't even ask questions. So it's really better for children to always know from the very beginning. Yeah, well, I may be meandering here, but I I have a question about... We can do that here. Okay, we can meander. You know, I'm just thinking about someone who would consider both sides of the street in this, and I'm thinking about the adoptive parent now. Mm -hmm. And surely the question comes, and surely you have a pat answer. Let's hope so. Let's see. Okay. (laughs) And uh, that's where they say, okay, now, when, when do I... How old do the child need to be? What's the circumstances when I sit down and I have that first talk, and what should that first talk look like? Maybe it should be less information in now and then more information later. Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. So what we tell every family um, at our trainings that we do for our families is um, we'll tell this kind of story or joke that, you know, there's this adoptive family and they have their newborn infant at the hospital. And as they're leaving, they ask their social worker, when do we tell him he's adopted? And she says, on the way home. You know, it's this idea of like, it's never a secret because for kiddos, things that are secretive are often seen as shameful, right? It's not, you're not ashamed that your child's adopted. It's part of his story. And so I think years ago, there was more of a stigma and it might be shameful to say, you know, where your child came from or to pretend, you know, I don't know how you even pretended really that mom had that baby. You know, everybody sees you and then all of a sudden you have an infant, but you were never nine months pregnant. So I'm not sure how that worked exactly, but you know, and our mom, birth mom goes off to live with, you know, Aunt Sally and comes back or, you know, they they used to have all these elaborate excuses for what happened. And unfortunately, there is still, I think, a lot of times shame that's put on the birth mom, Mm -hmm. um, which is really unfortunate because she's making a very brave and courageous decision. She could have made another choice to end her child's life, and she didn't. So she made a really bold, brave decision, and then she made another brave decision to place the baby for adoption. Unfortunately, our culture sometimes shames her for that. But regarding the adoptive family, we have them tell the child from the very beginning. And I say, practice when your baby is an, an infant. They have no idea what you're saying, but they're picking up on your tone. And so if you stumble through it, and you know, I don't know if that was good. I'm not sure. Let me, let's try saying it this way. You have plenty of time to practice before your child even has any idea what you're saying, but you're holding your baby and you're speaking in a loving way and they hear their birth mom's name and they hear the words birth mom and adoption and things like that. So when they're older, they know. Um, I had a family last summer with this annual reunion, this picnic, it's open to the public and our families come to it and bring the kiddos and it's 
sweet for us to get to see every year how they grow. And over the years, more and more of our birth moms have started coming, which is neat. Sometimes they come even if their family doesn't, you know, the, the adoptive family is able to come that year. Um, other times they come because they're having a visit with the adoptive family and the child. But at their picnic, one of the families pulled me aside and their baby was maybe three weeks old. And she said, OK, Erin, I have a really important question for you. And I said, OK. And she said, I need to tell you this story and have you tell me, is this okay? And I said, okay. So I had no idea what story she was going to tell me. And then she starts telling me this beautiful story. She's clearly a, a great writer, but she'd written this story and memorized it and had her husband memorize it. And it was a story of how their baby had come into their family. And it was really beautiful. And so she said, every night we tell our baby this story. What, what should we change? And so I was like, I really think it's great. But if you want to, you could add this or that. And and so I love that, that even at three weeks, they were practicing what we told them that you always tell your child. It's never a secret because if your child sees you as the expert you want your child to see as an expert in okay, all things okay are you telling me that they were kind of like reading this as a bedtime story yes yes and to that's three week old and that's how the child learned mm-hmm. through the years Absolutely. from the bedtime story yeah. and a lot of our families will make a book we encourage them to make a book and put in a picture when you met the birth mom and she was pregnant and put in a picture of the hospital the first time you held the baby and when you got home and so it's like their baby book and a lot of our kiddos they want to read their book every night okay do you have like a, a poster I want to say poster child but it's not it's a poster situation where everybody knows everybody and they love everybody and it's wonderful we have a lot of those <laughs> We do. We really do. Okay. That's great. I want to hear about one of those in a second, but what about a time that you called or had in the office that person and they didn't know what the conversation was about, but you were about to tell them you had found a baby for them? Did something pop in your mind? Oh, absolutely. Tell me, tell me your favorite story. We've had a lot of fun (laughs) stories like that over the years. One family, we joke that they get the award for the shortest notice. So I'll tell about them. Okay. Um, We had a birth mom who wanted at the time, it's now become open, but she wanted a closed adoption and are almost close. She still chose the family, but she didn't want to meet them or have any contact. So we respected her wishes. And she had come to us, you know, when she'd had the baby, we hadn't known her very long. And so we did our counseling, we did the paperwork, and we weren't going to tell the family unless it moved forward because she wasn't wanting to meet them anyway. We wouldn't want to get their hopes up. And so after she signed her paperwork and baby was discharged and, you know, I was getting the baby in the car seat and I called the family and said, you know, hey, you guys in town today and what are you up to? Would you like a baby? Exactly. free in about four hours, you know, and so I tell them, well, there's this mom that um, has chosen you. Oh my gosh, we're so excited. And they couldn't believe it. And I said, and the baby's already been born. Oh my, you know, they're just exclaiming over they can't believe it and I said and um, the baby will be and I will be at the office in about four hours can you meet me there and they just were in such shock they almost couldn't talk <laughs> so they all they could think of was they went to Target and they bought this red car seat because I couldn't even remember like was it a boy was it a girl they were just so excited red's good they got yeah red, red's a good color and got some diapers and wipes and met me at the office and they just I mean the whole time just this look of shock on their faces they were so excited but they love to tell that story to say I think don't we get the award four hours notice that's pretty mm-hmm. short I'm like yes that's still yeah still how long had they holder. been on the list they had been waiting for over a year I believe maybe a year and a half uh-huh. so they've been waiting for a little while okay. so it was a really sweet thing for them that it just happened just all of a sudden that uh, they who, woke up that morning and didn't have a baby by the time they went to bed that night they had a baby in their home and who do you know that has been on the list the longest what's the longest time period yeah our longest family waited almost three and a half years So a really long time. And our shortest family, I think we had a family that was chosen about a day 
within less than a week for sure after they were approved and ready to adopt. Last year, we had a family that was chosen in three weeks. So sometimes that happens really fast. Our average wait is about a year. Uh-huh. So, and that's of course an average. Some families wait three years, some families wait two years. Uh, many of our families wait a year or less, but it just depends on a lot of factors, what they're open to. Some families are less open to race and risk factors, and some families are more open. But ultimately, we believe that God's the one who puts families together. Mm-hmm. It's not us, mm-hmm. and it's God's timing that's perfect for bringing that child and that birth mom and that family together. Okay, what did I, I had a question a while ago, and I forgot it now. You were asking about the poster situation of a situation where all parties oh. involved are excited and happy about it. Do you have one of those? Yeah, we have a lot of those. Let me think of a good example. I mean, like when there's a birthday, all the sides, they come together. Yeah, Yeah, we do. So we have a family. They've actually adopted through us twice. And their older child, they have good relationships with both birth families. But their older child in particular, I'm a little girl. And every year, the mom was one of the moms, like I mentioned before, that she had a couple of kiddos she was parenting before she placed her baby for adoption. So this little girl has older siblings. So every year at the birthday party, birth mom comes, her kids come, um, and then actually birth dad, um, his mom comes, and his aunt comes. So he doesn't come, but his family comes. And so they all have grandma names, you know, and the little girl knows who they are. And it's just like one one big happy family that they all gather together for birthdays and um, milestone events, special events in the child's life. And she loves it. And, and they love on the little boy that's not related to them and vice versa when they get together with the little boy's birth family. Um, they're really sweet with the little girl who who's related to them and so they've all just kind of adopted each other really have become all one big family Mm. i want to say this in a way that doesn't sound mean but you know everyone has family and sometimes you're just stuck with who you're stuck with right and that's the way family is and i feel like adoption is more special because you can tell that adopted kid i picked you i chose you i had i had options and i wanted you and you were the one that i loved yeah, yeah. I mean, the birth mom chose them and the child, and it's just a neat. You're right. It's family is who you're you're born into a family, mm-hmm. but you also can choose a family. We choose who we marry, and that's part of our family, right? Right. And then when the birth mom chooses them, absolutely. Or if they're adopting internationally and they're matched with a referral for a waiting child or the embryos, like they're choosing to be in this process. They were choosing um, to grow their family and have another child. Okay. Do you ever place a child with a single? parent? In some of our programs, yes. So in our domestic program, um, what our birth mothers tell us is that they want a family with a mom and a dad. And a lot of times they'll say, I could be a really great mom. And she, she could, you know, <laughs> but she said, I can't be a mommy and a dad to my baby. So a lot of our birth moms have expressed that over the years that they really want um, a two parent family. Mm-hmm. Um, similar, our, sure. Similarly, our embryo families will say that, that they really want sure. a family. Um, you can be a single woman in our embryo program, but you would wait a lot longer typically. But internationally, there are many countries that allow single women to adopt. Um, some countries don't so it really depends on the program but we have had singles who've adopted but primarily our clients are adoptive couples sure. mom and dad so are you partnering with like orphanages overseas or how's that do. work yeah so we um, we sponsor a lot of orphanages and, and do a lot of orphan care um, take mission trips every year a number of our staff do not everybody goes but I never know if they have an opportunity to go if they'd like to um, but we have a number of our staff who work in our international programs and have really great relationships um, with the staff there so a lot of baby homes Um, which are focused primarily with the younger babies and toddlers and then orphanages with older kiddos. But um, we do a lot of work with um, training and education, um, equipping them with what they need. And also 
wanting to pour into communities because children who are being adopted internationally, we understand that that should be the last course of action, right? Like the, the ideal would be for them to remain in their family of origin if possible. And if that's not possible to remain in their community and to be fostered or adopted domestically in their own country. And then if that is not a possibility, then to be adopted internationally. Because for a child to leave their culture and their language and their people and everything they've ever known and move to a strange place with strange foods, you know, strange people. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's a shocking thing for a child and, and they lose something there, something significant. So we do want to pour into communities mm-hmm. and, and do work that we can there to care for orphans. And sometimes children in orphanages overseas, a lot of people don't know, but sometimes children are there because they have a family, but their family can't afford to care for them. So they're not actually available for adoption, but they need someone to support them because they don't have a way to have their medical care paid for or to be able to go to school or things like that. They need care, but their family can't provide it. So their family brought them to an orphanage. And so that's a different dynamic too. It's not that every child in an orphanage around the world is available for adoption. Okay, so what is what is the cost to the adoptive parents for an adoption? Yeah, so it ranges depending on the program. Every program has different fees. And we always want to be really clear because sometimes people can misunderstand that you're not paying for a baby, right? This is this is not child buying. That's a felony. We're not giving you a baby because you gave us money. But families pay fees for services that they receive. And so, you know, any family out there that's adopting has to have a home study. Mm-hmm. So we provide a home study. They pay a fee for that. They have to have training. There's a fee for that. So um, matching services and things like that. Any service that we're providing, the family pays a fee for. Um, any birth parents, all services are free of charge, of course. So that's another thing as well that the state allows us to help birth moms if we have a mom oftentimes end up losing their job and she doesn't have a way to pay her rent or um, to get groceries for herself and her kids or maybe none of her clothes fit and she needs maternity clothes but there's no way to buy those so there's ways that we're able to meet her practical needs and so part of the fees that the families pay go towards kind of a general birth mom fund Mm -hmm. that we're able to help these moms who otherwise you know wouldn't have a way to put gas in their car or get to the doctor so do you have a range like a high and a low about you know if someone's listening and they think I wonder if I can afford this yeah that's a great question so international it totally depends on the country and part of that is because some countries require one trip some require two or three trips Um, for embryo the program fees are Mm 8,000 and for domestic they're 25,500 so those are set we don't do pass-through fees it's not like charge a family here's exactly what it costs for us to support this birth mom throughout the pregnancy and it's all the fees are set so domestic and embryo I can just tell you off the top of my head, international, we actually have for any families that are interested um, that want to reach out, we have what we call a quick look. And it is a quick look, a little peek inside each of our international programs. And it'll say, you know, because some countries have very specific limits on how old you can be to adopt. Some countries have a limit on your BMI, you know, because they think if it's over a certain amount that you're not healthy. And so there's all these different factors. Some countries don't allow um, people to adopt if they um, are struggling with depression or anxiety. So sometimes other countries view conditions that as Americans are fairly normal to us as as much more serious maybe or um they would rule out a family from being able to adopt. And so that's something that a family could look at and it has the number of trips and a a general fee and all of that there. I'm sorry, I don't have those memorized. So we have a number of, I think we have 17 international programs. There's a lot. Okay, so do you have more adoptive parents than babies to adopt? 
always. Always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't. It's it's not that a mom comes to us and then we're scrambling to find a family. We always have approved and waiting families, and and that's really nice because that gives birth moms a choice. Whenever we because sh- we show her profiles and she chooses, mm-hmm. we will show her books, and a lot of our families will make a little video as well. We have a wonderful website that's called adoptionbridge.org. It's this free website, and so if a mom is pregnant, um, she can actually go on there and she clicks on a little tab that says "Dear Birth Mom," and she can look at the families and. She can click on their page and there's a letter and pictures. She can click on a link and go read their book, like a digital copy of it. We have hard copies as well at the office. And then um, a lot of our families make a video. So it just gives her an idea of who they are and what they're like and why they're adopting and if they have other kids and helps her to picture what her child's life would be like with them. Yeah, well, I, I usually have a question for the nonprofits that, you know, have executive directors. They come and they do the interview, but I don't think I'm going to ask you. Okay. Uh, but the question is, why do you love what you do? And that seems like a stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's clear that I love. I know what it I is. Do. That's why okay, I didn't ask good. you. You I can do. answer it if you want to, but I, I think I know the answer. Yeah, you probably do. But the reason that I was drawn to this job, I think I shared a little bit before initially, was getting to walk alongside these pregnant moms because that was something I really had a heart for. I've always loved children and families, but it's just been really beautiful over the years to see. And whenever you say, oh, do you have a story about this or that? I think, yeah, I could probably tell you 10 stories. You know, And I, I just love seeing God's faithfulness and his grace and his provision and seeing our moms and how they move forward in life. Um, a lot of times people think, oh, well, you know, I see how it's good for the baby because they get a family to love and care for them. And I see how adoption's good for the adoptive family. But I don't see how it's good for birth mom. Um, and I think that can be harder to see. But ultimately, it mm-hmm. really is because she has peace in knowing that she gave her child life mm-hmm. and that she gave her child a future and oftentimes everything she would have wanted to give her baby. Um, and I'm not even talking materially, but just that emotional um, two parent home, you know, the meeting the baby's emotional needs and physical needs and all of that. So it's been really sweet to see these moms who have that sense of peace and they can move forward in life and feel really good about it. And um, they'll say, you know, I've done the hardest thing anyone could ever do, which I agree. I think that's probably the hardest thing anyone could ever do is to place their child for adoption and they've survived it. And so they can go on. And I know a birth mom who she was in college when she placed her baby for adoption. She got pregnant with her college boyfriend and they both agreed adoption was the best plan. And after college, she um, went on and she got her master's and she got married and she earned her PhD and she's had another child, um, two children actually since, Um, but she's a statistician. She has this really cool job and she's very accomplished and she travels around the world, you know, for her job. And she said that she always wanted to make her child proud of her. And I certainly think she has, but she used that experience she went through as a reason to move forward in life and to accomplish things and wanted to make her child proud versus using it as a reason. You know, sometimes people take a hard situation they've been through and use that as an excuse versus a reason. And so I'm really proud of our birth moms and how well they do. And and a lot of them want to give back. And so they'll share their story every year. We have our Hope Gala. It's our annual fundraiser in the fall. And we have at least one, if not two birth moms share their stories. So there's a lot of cool events out there where people bring in speakers. But for us, I think the best speaker we could ever have is our birth moms and our adoptive families. And so that's who shares every year. We have a couple of stories throughout the night from birth moms and from adoptive families, whether embryo, international or domestic. Okay. Now the birth mom that you were mentioning earlier that wanted to make her child proud. Was that an open adoption? Yes. So she 
has stayed in contact mm-hmm. with her child mm-hmm. and knows whether or not her child is proud of Absolutely, her. yeah. And one of the benefits of openness, too, that I don't think I mentioned earlier, is the child can ask questions. So even though they've always heard why they were adopted, they can also ask their birth mom, you know, why did you place me for adoption? And mm-hmm. what was going on in your life? And what was that like for you? And it just gives them a different level of understanding than they would have had. How can people help Great generations? Question. Yeah. So I would say that a couple of ways. One would be to pray for us. So we actually I send out a prayer email every month. Um, so if you want to be on that, just let me know. I'd be happy to add you to it. Um, but we send out a prayer email and it has practical needs in there. So if we have a training class coming up and you want to bake us a breakfast casserole, for adoptive families, we'd love that. Or at Christmas time, we do an outreach to pregnancy centers. Um, we work with a lot of pregnancy centers around the state, and so we want to bring them homemade cookies. So there's a lot of different things like that. Sometimes practical needs, like we might be working with a mom who needs clothes for her child or diapers or um, pull-ups or wipes or things like that. So there's sometimes really practical needs that need to be met. So that's a big blessing. And um, we do have families and individuals who are monthly donors. And so like I mentioned at the beginning, we are a nonprofit, and some people go, well, why do you need to raise money if families are paying fees? Well, we keep our fees as low as we possibly can, and we supplement with our fundraising. Um, you know, a lot of places, a, a domestic adoption might be forty-five or fifty thousand dollars, and ours it's twenty-five. So we right. really try to keep fees as low as we possibly can in order to serve as many families as we can, as many birth moms as we can. And so we need to supplement that with um, with funding. So we have families and individuals who support us every month, and then coming to events like. Family Fun Day and celebrating with us. It's June 23rd this year on a Saturday, Crestview. I'm at a local church here. And then our annual Hope Gala um, in the fall. It's October 20th this year, also a Saturday. And um, and that's a great way to support us as well as to come and meet our families and meet our birth moms. And but I would say those are really the big ways. Prayer, um, support with practical items, and, um, and also giving to the ministry. Okay, so how much practical giving did you receive in 2017 total? As far as donations? Donations. Or? Donations. I'm not talking about fees. I'm talking about private donations where you need that extra. I think we received about $40,000 in private donations last okay. year. So if somebody wrote you a check mm-hmm. for $40,000, that mm-hmm. would cover your year. That would be amazing. We'd be very blessed okay. if someone out there listening <laughs> wants to bless us I had to that. get that in because I know there's somebody oh, out there that could write that check thank you easily. Yeah. And we thank you, sir, whoever, and, or ma'am, <laughs> or ma'am. <laughs> whoever you are. Sir, sir, madam, yes, we thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we do have, we have businesses that support us and as other nonprofits do, you know, when we have our Hope Gala or even for, for organizations, if they wanted to underwrite our family fund day we provide food and the events free you know and so and then for our hope gala in the fall for the community you can buy a ticket to come but we don't charge our adoptive families Mm -hmm. and we certainly don't charge our birth moms that want to come and so that's another way too maybe even if you're not able to come to the gala you could buy a couple of tickets and that's a way for a birth mom and her family to get to come to the gala okay well i've asked more questions than i usually do uh randy (laughs) usually carries the load but hey uh, it's all good so (laughs) i hope he understands do you have any questions it's a partnership here i was just going to say 
how can people best get in contact with you? Website, social media, stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we do have a social media. And then our general website is just info at nightlight.org. Um, you're also welcome to email me. But you can go to the website and um, we have all the state's information listed out because we have we actually just opened an office in Florida. So now we're in nine states. Um, it was eight states when we emerged. And so um, you can actually see there's a staff picture and links to all of our email addresses there. But for anybody who knew us as Generations, we're mostly the same staff. We had a few people who retired with the merger. We've had a few new people who've who've been hired, but I've been there almost 11 years next month. And we have another staff member who's been there just longer than I have. Um, so we have many people who've been around for a long time and we're in the same building with the same address and the same phone number, you know, that we've always had. And so a lot of people who um, have heard that we've merged wondered, oh, have you gone away? Nope, we're still here. Um, and we also have an Austin office as well in the For the City Center. Yeah. And so why the merger? So the merger was a huge blessing to us because, you know, the adoption climate um, can be really challenging. Um, With international adoption, a program could close overnight, you know, if a country decides they're not open to adoption anymore. Laws that change can really affect adoption agencies, and we're very blessed in Texas um, to have the opportunity as a faith-based agency to choose which families that are a good criteria, a good Mm -hmm. fit for our program. And if we have a family call and they're not a good fit for us, we're happy to provide them with referrals, just like any other agency. So we all kind of have our niche, right? And our niche is Christian homes for children. So that's a big blessing for us. Mm. One of the reasons that the merger was such a blessing for us is that it allowed our birth moms to have a lot more choices. So instead of, you know, here are 12 or 15 or 20 families in the state of Texas that are already approved and ready to adopt, you know, you have 50 families you know, working with all the different offices of Nightlight. Like I mentioned, we're in nine different states of nine different offices. We can work with a family in any state. We can also work with a birth mom in any state. And so before the merger in 2016 was our last year's generations, we had our lowest number of placements ever. I mean, we, we had been averaging somewhere between probably 13 and 16, 17 adoptions. Our highest year, we'd had 22 placements. This is all domestic right. program. Um, and the year before the merger, we had eight placements. And part of that is nationally, about 2% of women who are facing unplanned pregnancy place for adoption. So about 50% parent, about 48% choose to abort their babies, mm. and that remaining 2% are the ones who place for adoption. And in Texas, that had been slightly lower. It was 1.9%. So we we're a little under the national average. And then last year we noticed, or I'm sorry, 2016, we noticed, gosh, that was a really low year for us and contacted other agencies and they'd all had a similar experience. And some new research came out showing that actually it dropped from 1.9 to 0.9. So the numbers of women placing had dropped in half. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. It could be an uptick in abortions. There's a lot more children in foster care, which seems to be moms are parenting maybe when they aren't ready or able to, and then more children are being removed. So there's actually a a great need for foster families. So part of the merger was providing more choices for birth moms where they actually had a bigger selection of families to choose from and then for our families to have the opportunity to be chosen by birth moms in other states so like i said the year before the merger we had eight domestic placements last year we had 19. so that was for us confirmation that this was where god had led us and of those 19 we had 12 moms in texas so even more you know thankfully than the year before 12 moms that we work with here locally or somewhere in the state of Texas who placed for adoption and 11 of those chose 
Texas family. So it's, you know, what generations always done, a Texas family, Texas mom. One of those moms chose a California family working with, that's where the main office of Nightlight is, is in California. And so she chose a California family. And then we had seven out of state moms working with other Nightlight offices that chose one of our generation's Nightlight families. And um, five from Missouri, one from Colorado, and one from South Carolina. So that was really exciting to get to see that part of the process too for our families. So that was a really sweet um, just confirmation for us that we had really prayed a lot about what to do. Um, you know, a lot of agencies have closed in the last couple of years. And so we really prayed and sought after what God had for us. And we really felt like he still had more for us to do and that he'd called us for a reason. He created this agency for a reason and it was his. And so we wanted to follow his leading and really felt like Nightlight, you know, it is a Christian organization, Christian staff, and we were very like-minded in that way. And in fact, one of the other offices in Missouri, they used to be their own separate adoption agency, just like Generations was. And we had worked with them before and knew they were, you know, Christian staff with high integrity and, um, and they joined Nightlight the year before we did. And so that was a great confirmation too, to see, okay, this is just really a lot of Christian organizations that used to be smaller entities coming together to be able to serve God and serve families and serve birth moms and children. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I hope everyone learned a lot about adoption. I know I did. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Charity Champions podcast. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please take a moment and rate and review us. This helps our podcast reach more listeners. Have a charity you'd like to nominate for next season? Visit charitychampions.org nominate. You can also find more information on this podcast and all Charity Champions at charitychampions.org. And of course, tell all your friends. We'll see you next time.